Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Seven states held primary elections on Tuesday. We take a look at the projected winners and voters recall San Francisco's district attorney. Mail-in ballots have the go-ahead in Arizona. A judge has denied a Republican request to block them. He said there is nothing unconstitutional about the state's early voting law. Are wind and solar more cost-efficient compared to conventional fuels? A recent study says no and says more than just emissions must be taken into account. And we take a closer look at relations between the U.S. and Taiwan in light of China's recent flyovers and a fighter jet crashing in Hawaii. Seven states, South Dakota, California, New Mexico, Mississippi, Iowa, Montana, and New Jersey, held their primary elections on Tuesday. We take a look at the projected winners. NTD reporter Jeremy Sandberg has the results. In South Dakota, current Republican Governor Kristi Noem won her party nomination to face off against Democratic State Representative Jamie Smith, who went unchallenged. In the state Senate Republican primary, incumbent John Thune is the projected winner. Thune will face Democrat Brian Banks, who ran uncontested. In California's U.S. Senate primary, the projected winners are Alex Padilla on the Democratic side and Mark Moiser for Republicans. The same two nominees are advancing to a special election runoff to fill the seat during the remainder of the current term. California has 52 congressional districts in the primary. Trump-endorsed Connie Conway is projected to win District 22's special election to fill the House seat left vacant by Devin Nunes. Incumbent Governor Gavin Newsom is moving on to the general election along with Republican gubernatorial nominee Brian Dalle. San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine is being removed from office by voters after a recall election on Tuesday. Bodine is being accused of caring more about criminals than victims and creating a no-consequence environment with his progressive policies. Homicides, drug overdose deaths, and theft all rose sharply during his time in office. In New Mexico's House Primary District 1, Michelle Garcia Holmes is the projected winner for Republicans. Democratic incumbent Representative Melanie Ann Stansbury ran unopposed. For the House 2nd District, Gabriel Vasquez is the Democratic winner, and for Republicans, incumbent Yvette Harrell ran uncontested. The House 3rd District has Teresa Ledger-Fernandez for Democrats and Alexis Martinez-Johnson for the GOP. In the race for governor, Mark Ronchetti won the Republican nomination with a wide margin and will face incumbent Democrat Michelle Lujan Grisham, who ran unopposed. Mississippi has four congressional districts. For the first district, Diane Black won the Democratic nomination and incumbent Trent Kelly won the GOP vote. Incumbent Benny Thompson moves on for Democrats and Brian Flowers is heading to a runoff for second district. Third district has Shuwaski Young for Democrats. On the Republican side, Michael Cassidy and Michael Guest are neck and neck in a race too close to be called yet. Fourth district has Johnny Dupree for Democrats. Incumbent Republican Representative Stephen Palazzo moves on to a runoff. Iowa's Senate Democratic primary has Michael Franken as the winner and incumbent Chuck Grassley for Republicans. Iowa has four districts being contested in their House primaries, and Montana has two. Democrat Monica Trinnell wins Montana's 1st District nomination, and Trump-backed Ryan Zinke is projected to be the GOP nominee. Montana's 2nd District has Penny Ronning for Democrats against incumbent Republican Matt Rosendale. In New Jersey, outcomes of November's House general election could play a part in deciding the majority party in the House of Representatives. 11 of New Jersey's 12 congressional incumbents seeking re-election, 9 Democrats and 2 Republicans, secured their party's nomination. 
At least four of those sitting Democrats are anticipating tough challenges from their Republican opponents this fall. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A judge has ruled that the Arizona legislature is within its constitutional rights to allow mail-in ballots, though GOP leaders in the state said they won't drop their efforts to block the voting method. Let's zoom in on what's going on. An Arizona judge has struck down a request by the state GOP to bar mail-in ballots in the upcoming election. Mojave County Superior Court Judge Lee Jansen wrote in his ruling that there is nothing in the Arizona Constitution which expressly prohibits the legislature from authoring new voting laws, including no-excuse mail-in ballots. The judge added that the state constitution allows for the passage of new voting laws as long as ballot secrecy is guaranteed. Arizona's no-excuse mail-in voting began with a law in 1991. It requires early ballots to be returned in envelopes that do not reveal the voters' selections or political party affiliation, and that is tamper-evident when properly sealed. About 89 percent of Arizona voters used this method in the 2020 general election, but that year's highly disputed election outcomes sparked concerns about election integrity. Arizona GOP said in a statement that it fears if this ruling stands, Arizona's most vulnerable voters will be deprived of the protections to which they are constitutionally entitled. The party said it seeks a system to restore for the sick, elderly, and other absentee voters so they can have the protection and reassurance of election officials safeguarding their votes from ballot traffickers. The party chair, Dr. Kelly Ward, also tweeted that there is no chain of custody when a ballot is mailed. Arizona GOP leaders said they're considering their next move, which may include an appeal in a higher court. The three Democratic candidates for New York governor debated last night. The current governor took heat for gun violence and the Buffalo Stadium deal. All candidates expressed concern about rising crime. It was the first debate for Governor Kathy Hochul as she campaigns against primary challengers in an effort to keep her job. The Democrat has been in office for 10 months and is facing primary challenges from U.S. Congressman Tom Suozzi and New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. Tuesday's debate was the first time the three candidates have shared the same stage during their campaigns. Hochul became governor in August when then-Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned. Compared to Swazi and Williams, Hochul has stacked up major endorsements and hefty campaign funds. Williams and Swazi renewed criticism of Hochul for her plan to put $850 million of taxpayer money toward a new stadium for her hometown Buffalo Bills and also an endorsement from the NRA she received 10 years ago. As the Biden administration pushes for a drastic energy transition, proponents argue renewable energies like wind and solar are cheaper. But is that true? A recent study found if you look at all the cost factors, wind and solar are actually more expensive than conventional fuels. Entity's Jessica Beatty explains. As the world rushes to drop fossil fuels and transition to renewable energy like wind and solar, three researchers say not so fast. They say you can't just look at emissions, you have to look at the entire value chain. Their recent study found that it's actually more expensive to produce energy with wind and solar than with conventional fuels. The authors looked at several cost factors, including the cost of building, fuel, operating, transportation, storage, backup, emissions, recycling, space, equipment lifetime, and how many materials go into each system. They found that way more materials are needed for solar, hydropower, and wind compared to coal, natural gas, and nuclear. They also looked at another important concept, energy return on investment. 
The EROI ratio measures energy inputs compared to energy outputs. The authors, citing Ewan Mern's work, said modern life requires a minimum EROI ratio of 5 to 7. But they pointed out that most solar and many wind installations are lower than that and are not efficient enough to support society. Co-author Lars Chernikow is an energy economist and commodity trader. At a SAGE talk last month, he said, quote, If the world were today to go 100% wind, solar, and biomass, we would not be sitting here. There would not be enough energy. We'd go into energy starvation. And that's what you start to see now in the market. He doubted the current pathway to more wind and solar electricity is environmentally viable, calling them, quote, the least energy efficient. We reached out to the Energy Department for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. The study concluded with suggestions for a revised energy policy, saying energy policy should not favor any of the energy sources, but should support all energy systems to avoid energy shortage or energy poverty. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Coming up, victims of sex abuse want the leader of a Mexico-based church to get the maximum sentence. They are worried an upcoming plea deal will be too soft. And victims of water contamination at a Marine Corps base may soon be able to seek restitution from the federal government. The U.S. Senate is expected to pass a bill on the issue this week. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Several alleged sex abuse victims of the leader of a Mexico-based church are speaking out ahead of his sentencing. They want him to receive the maximum prison time. We are here today to give survivors a platform to be heard because the criminal courts are not listening to all of them. This is so that every survivor's voice is heard, so that the sentence can be appropriate for the crime that was perpetrated. As human beings, children, I was a child when I was trafficked, sexually trafficked. I was tormented by this man. He's a sexual terrorist, and he has been doing this for years. Nesan Joaquin Garcia pleaded guilty on Friday to felony counts of sexually abusing three children. He was arrested in Los Angeles in 2019. Garcia is a 53-year-old Mexican citizen. He's a self-styled apostle of the La Luz del Mundo Church in Guadalajara, Mexico. The man faces a maximum sentence of over 16 years in prison. The alleged victims are demanding life imprisonment. Along with Garcia, two more from his church were arrested in 2019. Together, they faced 36 felonies, including charges of rape, child pornography, and human trafficking. Most of those charges were dropped in exchange for a guilty plea avoiding life in prison. In a statement in May, the church maintained that its leader was innocent and said it had full confidence that his innocence and honorability would be proven. Garcia's sentencing will begin today. Dozens of women and girls who were abused by former USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser have submitted claims to the FBI for more than a billion dollars. More than 90 people say the FBI mishandled the case instead of preventing Nasser from allegedly abusing more people. They say the agency had credible complaints from numerous victims in July 2015, but did not interview them or properly investigate the abuse. As a result, they allege that he was able to sexually abuse about 90 young women and kids within about a year. 
Claimants are required to give notice to the FBI before a lawsuit is filed in federal court. The agency then has six months to either reach a settlement or deny the claim before the lawsuit can be brought. Nasser is serving 40 to 175 years in prison after pleading guilty to seven counts of criminal sexual conduct. He was also sentenced to a 60-year sentence in federal prison on child pornography charges. Police say six members of Haiti's Special Olympics delegation mysteriously went missing just a day into the 2022 event in Orlando, Florida. In a missing persons bulletin, the Osceola County Sheriff's Office said that all of the members turned in their room keys and left behind their personal bags and belongings. All six are adults aged between 18 and 32. The bulletin says they are in the United States competing in a soccer competition. The Special Olympics said in a statement to CNN that only one of the missing persons is a Special Olympics athlete and has an intellectual disability. The statement also said the well-being of these delegates is a top concern. The games run from June 5th through June 12th. Organizers say more than 5,500 athletes and coaches from the U.S. and the Caribbean and 125,000 spectators will attend the games. After years of waiting, veterans who were exposed to contaminated drinking water at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina may soon have the right to seek restitution from the federal government. Here are the details. The Camp Lejeune Justice Act is expected to pass the Senate this week. It would allow anyone who lived or worked at Camp Lejeune between 1952 and 1987 for at least 30 days and who was exposed to its contaminated water to file a claim against the federal government. Uh, We drank tons of water and we bathed in it, but we had no idea about the, uh, the toxic water. Former Marine Dwight Cross was posted to Camp Lejeune in 1987. Even when I went through my diagnosis of multiple myeloma, um, it wasn't until after my diagnosis that I found out about the, uh, the toxic water. And it was supposed to be about four months of chemotherapy, followed by a stem cell um, transplant. And in my case, it ended up being about a year of uh, chemotherapy. Evidence of contaminated groundwater at Camp Lejeune was first found in the early 1980s. Further testing revealed that the contamination came from leaking fuel tanks and an off-base dry cleaner. This new bill would prohibit the federal government from asserting specific immunity from litigation in response to any potential lawsuit. We served everybody, and now it's the government's time to to serve us. Audrey Williams-Pride lived at Camp Lejeune with her husband for two years. She blames the toxic water for causing her stillbirth in 1986. I was not aware at the time that the water was toxic, contaminated, Um, That's where a lot of the anger comes in with me because I was not made aware and it has been more likely than not that my baby died because of the toxic water at Camp On Tuesday, President Biden signed into law nine bipartisan bills that will honor and improve care for veterans. They address health hazards that service members face, such as burn pits, jet fuels and toxic smoke. A sailor killed in the Pearl Harbor attack who remained unidentified for decades was laid to rest Monday more than 80 years after his death. George Gilbert was 20 years old when he died. He was stationed on the USS Oklahoma after joining the Navy from Indiana. His ship sank when it was hit by torpedoes during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. A total of 429 sailors and Marines on the ship were killed. 
Gilbert's remains were recovered after the attack but could not be identified. He was buried as an unknown at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, known as the Punch Bowl in Honolulu. Gilbert's remains were identified in August 2020 with procedures including dental and DNA analysis. On Monday, the sailor was laid to rest at the Punch Bowl with his granddaughter and her two sons in attendance. Gilbert's name remains on the walls of the missing at the Punch Bowl, along with those of other World War II missing persons, but he will now have a rosette to indicate he's been accounted for. The U.S. military is building a new kind of submarine. They will supposedly be the quietest and deadliest in existence. The subs are set to replace the Navy's Cold War-era submarines. The Navy plans to build 12 of the new submarines to replace 14 of the old ones. The new Columbia-class submarines will carry 16 missiles each, and it will make up 70% of the U.S.'s nuclear arsenal. The submarine will be the largest ever used by the Navy, and its nuclear core will not need refueling over its life of service. The USS District of Columbia submarines are scheduled for delivery in 2027, with expected deployment in 2030. The submarines are expected to last into the 2080s. Building has already started at General Dynamics Electric Boat at a shipyard in Rhode Island. New York police arrested a man for allegedly throwing a woman off a subway platform. NYPD tweeted out a video showing the Sunday attack. 30-year-old Theodore Ellis is in custody for allegedly grabbing a woman from behind and throwing her onto the subway tracks. The 52-year-old victim is recovering at the hospital. Ellis is charged with assault and reckless endangerment. Those charges may change once the Bronx District Attorney's Office gets the case. Goodyear is recalling more than 170,000 truck and RV tires made between 1996 and 2003. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says it found the G159 tires had a high rate of failure on RVs compared to similar tires. The agency is urging anyone who owns, rents, or uses an RV or truck with 22.5-inch rims to check and make sure they're not using these tires or have one as a spare tire. Those who do have them should get a free replacement at a Goodyear retail location. The company is also giving a $500 refund for tires not installed on a vehicle. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, a Ukrainian refugee resettled in the UK says that she spotted belongings looted from her home on a Russian tank. She recognized her brand new boiler and bed linen that was purchased for her children in a photo on the news. And at a research center of the outskirts of Rome, experts test methods to produce cleaner, alternative sources of energy in an effort to reduce dependence on Russian gas. Find out more in just a minute. Ukrainian refugee in the UK spotted her belongings taken from her Ukrainian home in a photograph on the news. It shows a brand new boiler still in its box and new bed linen for her children. The items were laid out on a Russian tank. She says the Russian army is not only destroying their homes, but also stealing their possessions. Entity's Eddie Aitken has more. Alina Karenyuk said on May 29th she received a message from her husband asking if she noticed anything strange about a photo. It showed a Russian tank shot on the street where she used to live in Popansa in Luhansk region. 
There is a box on this tank. It's clear, of course, that many people will now say that the box could be someone else's. But I had exactly the same box in my pergola. It's a box containing a gas boiler that we bought just before the new year. Koranyuk says she took a closer look and then spotted other items on the tank that she recognized. The bed linen she had bought for her children, an old blanket and even an oilcloth from her home. I realize that so many people have looked at this photograph and sadly it turns out they are my belongings. I just want to make the point that the Russian army is not only destroying, they are also stealing what has not been destroyed, so to say. Korenyuk left Popansa when the war started in late February with her two daughters, 12-year-old Kristina and 8-year-old Olha. We were already driving out while there was gunfire. Ola, my youngest, asked me to close the window and she was just crying terribly. But I could not even close the window because I needed to hear. We already understood if a shell was flying towards us or from us. It was different sounds and you could hear it. And I had to understand where it was coming from. They are now staying in Nottinghamshire with a British family under the Homes for Ukrainian scheme. They are learning English and her children are already going to school. Karenik said they were warmly welcomed by the host family and she finds British people to be very open. And when they find out that you are from Ukraine, everyone wants to sympathize with you, to buy ice cream for the children. With her husband, mother and grandmother still in Ukraine, thoughts of returning home are still on her mind. But she says she would only go back if Ukraine has control of her city. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. A non-governmental organization from Denmark is showing Ukrainians how to remove mines and unexploded devices from the battlefields as the war with Russia rages on. Ukrainian civilians are being taught how to remove mines and unexploded ordnance from deserted battlefields. As the war with Russia rages on, demining crews are being trained by the Danish Refugee Council, an NGO that was among the first international humanitarian aid organizations to establish a formal partnership with Ukraine's state emergency services. In Ichnya, in the southwest of Ukraine's Chernihiv region, deminers scour a dirt track with detectors, listening for any warning sounds that could indicate a possible find. 37-year-old Elena gave up her job as a fitness instructor to travel around the country, clearing it of mines. I have received some training. We attend training sessions regularly. So there is no fear. You are aware of what you are doing and why. We aren't afraid. If you follow the rules and safety protocols, everything will turn out all right. The team have already found 26 artillery shells around the dirt track, Elena told Reuters. Farmers and local civilians are in particular danger from abandoned mines, says the demining crew's team leader, Maxim Sareda. All farmers are actively sowing any territory they can use. They can't use this road, so we made a decision to clean it out for farmers' further use. This way they can feel safe while processing and gathering crops, which helps support Ukraine during the war. With the harvest season starting soon, many farmers ignore the risks to work in and travel through fields that were active battlegrounds mere weeks ago. 
This week, European Union leaders agreed to embargo most Russian oil imports into the bloc by the end of the year as the war in Ukraine continues. At a research center on the outskirts of Rome, experts are testing methods to produce cleaner, alternative sources of energy. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. On the outskirts of Rome, Italian researchers are working on ways to replace existing energy technologies with new, greener systems like this biogas plant that produces methane from rotting food scraps. The production of biogas lends an important hand to achieving energy independence. It has been calculated that if we were able to use much of our food waste, we would produce about 10% of the methane gas we use for energy, and that means we would be able to substitute an important part for energy independence. But the technology is not widespread, and burning methane gas still creates emissions. So hydrogen plays a large part in the search for alternative fuels. Its waste product is just water. At the high-temperature fuel cells plant, researchers like Davide Pumiglia are convinced this combustible gas is the way forward. He designs and builds battery cells. This machine can produce not only hot water to heat the home, but also electricity. This machine is used to heat up fuel cells. Its function is to use hydrogen or any other combustible gas to produce electricity and heat in an extremely efficient way. For now, Pumiglia says the costs are still too high to produce this kind of energy on a larger scale. But newer technologies and wider public use could bring costs down eventually. In general terms, if you imagine that to produce a kilowatt of power with these machines costs about 10,000 euros, in order to be perfectly competitive with the current technology to produce power, which we are used to, for example the combustion engine, we would have to lower that cost to about 4,000 euros per kilowatt. In the meantime, Italy has secured a deal for more natural gas imports across a Mediterranean pipeline from Algeria. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And still to come, China's rainy season has begun with severe downpours wreaking havoc in the southern regions. But local authorities may be adding to the damage. And the alleged leader of an Asian drug syndicate is headed to Australia after Dutch court denied his appeal not to be extradited. The Chinese-born Canadian national faces trial there. Stay tuned for more right after this short break. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman is urging Pyongyang to return to dialogue. She spoke during a news conference with her South Korean and Japanese counterparts in Seoul. We discussed the DPRK, including this weekend's very provocative ballistic missile launch. The United States, the Republic of Korea and Japan are fully and closely aligned on the DPRK. Our shared goal remains achieving the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. South Korea's vice foreign minister called on Pyongyang to accept offers of COVID-19 aid. North Korea is grappling with its first confirmed CCP virus outbreak since last month. The three-way meeting of the country's number two diplomats is the first such gathering since November. It's also the first since South Korea's new president took office. It highlights the urgency and gravity of North Korea's intensifying weapons tests. In a joint statement, the trio urged Pyongyang to abide by international sanctions. They pushed for the North to immediately stop actions that escalate tensions or destabilize the region. 
Seoul and Washington officials have said North Korea is ready for what would be its first nuclear test since 2017. Sherman has said it would trigger a strong and clear response. U.S. security agencies say hackers backed by the Chinese regime have breached major telecommunications companies. They reportedly exploited known software flaws in routers and other popular networking gear. The FBI, the National Security Agency, and the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released the advisory. They say these devices are often overlooked. The victims of the hacking have not been disclosed. The Chinese regime routinely denies hacking allegations. Relations between the U.S. and Taiwan are back in the spotlight again after a military incident in Hawaii. We hear some analysis on this from an expert on U.S.-Taiwan relations. Please welcome Rupert Hammond Chambers, who is the president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council. Thank you for coming on the show, Rupert. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Let's start off with the Taiwanese F-16 that was flown by a U.S. pilot. It crash-landed at an international airport in Hawaii on Monday. What does this suggest in terms of cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan? It demonstrates just how close the cooperation is between the U.S. and Taiwan. We've long had efforts uh, 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 cooperation with, with, uh, with Taiwan, both for training here in the continental United States, as well as a, a robust support for Taiwan's F-16, F-16 fleet, which will, when the new tranche of F-16s are bought uh, through 2023 and 2026, Taiwan will have one of the largest, if not the largest, F-16 fleet in Asia. And speaking of fighter jets, China recently just launched its second largest incursion this year into the island's airspace. Do we expect to see more of this? And has the U.S. responded, and will they? 100% we, we can expect to see more of this. This is part of China's well-established gray zone activities, that they have two primary designs. The first is to coerce and pressure the Taiwan people into uh, the Chinese position that Taiwan belongs to the People's Republic of China, communist China. That, of course, has never been the case. But nevertheless, those activities are designed to place political pressure through military action. And secondly, and I think also importantly, perhaps somewhat a little bit less so, is, uh, is the Chinese are trading increasingly around the island of Taiwan with, with, with uh, an increasing number of airplanes and, in, and a, an increasing variety of airplanes uh, to improve their interoperability, information gathering, and also to gauge how well the Taiwan military respond to these incursions. And as the Chinese Communist Party, are they succeeding at their goals in doing this? On the former point, I would argue no, because Taiwan's the, the, the rise in support for Taiwan sovereignty uh, from Taiwan citizens continues. And uh, their support for uh, uh, some kind of unification with, with, uh, with China is at a low and continues to fall for whatever remains of the Taiwan population that sees that as a, as a positive. So on that front, no. On the, on the latter point, though, in respect to training, for sure, China's military is, it would be cavalier for us to disregard China's military, as they invest enormous sums of money, both in procuring modern kits as well as training with it to improve their ability to use it. And what do we expect to see in terms of trade between the U.S. and Taiwan going forward? I think we're going to see more cooperation in, in strategic areas. Semiconductors is obviously the, the big issue of the day, and that's not going away. Semiconductors are so important to the lifeblood of the global economy, and Taiwan finds itself uh, at, the, at the center of that along with 
not, not coincidentally, the us here in the States, as well as Japan to the north of Taiwan. And I would argue that what we're going to increasingly see in the next uh, few years is increased cooperation between those three countries in cooperating on semiconductors parochially, but more generally uh, in areas of, of, uh, of technology cooperation, pharmaceutical cooperation, a whole range of areas that uh, Taiwan has uh, strengths in and that the United States wants to capitalize in cooperation with. Rupert Hammond Chambers of the U.S. Taiwan Business Council, thank you so much for your analysis. It's always my pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Flood season in China has begun. Since June, persistent rains in at least eight southern Chinese provinces have caused serious floods. Now bands of rain are shifting to the north. Check it out. Long-lasting downpours have caused major damage in regions of south China. The heavy rain led reservoirs to fill quickly and exceed flood warning levels. Guangxi province has seen some of the most severe flooding this year. Street signs there are underwater, with major traffic blockades happening because of it. Reports say more than 43,000 households lost power. But one citizen made an interesting observation, saying water levels in her area kept rising even after the rain stopped. She speculates that's because local authorities were releasing excess overflow from nearby reservoirs. In Guangdong, some villages saw similar problems. Authorities there reportedly didn't inform locals about a plan to release excess water from a reservoir. The move caused major flooding in lower-lying areas. Over in Zhejiang province, as many as 23 reservoirs exceeded warning levels as of Monday. Like in other areas, officials gave no notice before discharging excess water. One social media user revealed why authorities haven't been informing residents ahead of time. He said a local official told him that this way, authorities can avoid being forced to pay out compensation for damages. According to him, the official said, quote, when you inform residents about plans to discharge water, will they agree with it? They would demand compensation for crops, livestock, and other property damage, at least billions of dollars. But instead, the same residents would be grateful for bags of instant noodles from authorities if they believe the flood came from natural causes. In Fujian province, heavy rains have caused more than 10 landslides. More than nine inches of rainfall hit the region from Sunday through Tuesday. That water damaged over 320 sections of roadway and 210 acres of crops. Parts of Hunan province saw even more severe flooding with water reaching a depth of two stories in some places. A Thai court today jailed six police officers for life for torturing and killing a drug suspect during interrogation. Among the six was an influential police colonel famously nicknamed Joe Ferrari for his collection of luxury sports cars. The judge in Bangkok initially sentenced the six officers to death for coercion, abuse of authority, and death by torture but changed that to life imprisonment for their cooperation and attempts to revive the suspect. The victim's father told reporters that he was satisfied with the police investigation, but said he felt helpless during the ruling and his wife cried when the sentence was reduced. The police chief in Nakansawan province was arrested with the other officers in August when an interrogation video went viral. It showed the victim with plastic bags over his head, suffocating while pinned down on the floor. 
a drug kingpin can be extradited to Australia. The Dutch Supreme Court has dismissed an appeal by the alleged leader of an Asian drug syndicate. He's fighting extradition to Australia, where he faces trial for drug trafficking. He is a Canadian national who was born in China. His name is Sei Chi Lop. Police arrested Sei at an Amsterdam airport in January last year at the request of the Australian police. In July of 2021, a court ruled that Sei could be extradited to Australia. Sei denies the allegations and his lawyers said they would challenge the extradition, but the Supreme Court on Tuesday dismissed his appeal. This paves the way for a final decision from the Dutch justice minister who gets the final say on extradition requests. The minister's decision can, however, be challenged in court. In its initial ruling, the lower court judges urged the justice minister to seek assurances from Australia. They want to ensure that, in the event of his extradition, Say would not be given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, NASA is planning a landmark locked rocket launch in Australia. It would mark the first time the space agency has launched rockets at a commercial facility outside the U.S. And Uber and Waymo team up to make self-driving trucks. The two companies are now joining together after once having faced legal clashes over an alleged plot to steal intellectual property. We'll have more for you after this short break. NASA plans to launch rockets from northern Australia for scientific research within weeks. This marks the first time NASA has launched rockets from a commercial facility outside the U.S. That private spaceport is the Arnhem Space Centre, which is owned and operated by a company called Equatorial Launch Australia. About 75 NASA personnel will be in Australia for the event. During a media briefing in the city of Darwin on Wednesday, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he hoped the project would inspire young people. This is a really exciting uh, project. Uh, This is about not just uh, the uh, rocket launches itself, but it's about sending a message uh, to younger Australians and indeed Australians of any age who might be looking at at retraining uh, for future careers of how important science is. Uh, We want uh, the next generation Uh, to really look at STEM as part of Australia's future. And uh, that's why uh, this is an important project. The NASA missions will investigate heliophysics, astrophysics and planetary science phenomena that can only be seen from the Southern Hemisphere. The launches will be the first by the US Space Agency from Australia since 1995. A Japanese company is hoping its new machine will go to the moon. The company, called Gitai, showed off its new lunar rover at a facility built to mimic the surface of the moon. That area was provided by Japanese space agency JAXA, which partnered with Gitai to build the machine called R1. The company hopes to send its spidery-looking rover to the moon in just a few years. American companies like Lockheed Martin, iSpace, and Astrobotic are also working to develop their own lunar rovers. 
Uber and Waymo, the self-driving car company of Google's parent company, were once going head-to-head in the courts over self-driving technology, but now they have plans to team up on fully autonomous trucks. It all revolves around Uber Freight, an app that matches trucks with companies who need to ship something. Once the Waymo trucks are rolled out, companies can go to the app and choose the self-driving Waymo truck for their shipping needs. And on the other side, shipping companies who buy the Waymo trucks can use Uber Freight to find customers. The companies say autonomous trucks would handle any long-haul driving and humans would handle shorter trips. The long-term strategic partnership is quite a turnaround considering the heated lawsuit the companies battled out a few years ago, which included an alleged plot to steal trade secrets and intellectual property. Coming up, pizza makers from all over the Americas meet in Argentina for a pizza making contest. The winner will move on to the World Pizza Championship in Italy. And meet Larry, the official resident cat of the UK Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street. He has lived there longer than most UK Prime Ministers. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Pizza Masters from all over America met this Tuesday in Buenos Aires to participate in the second edition of the Pan-American Pizza Tournament and the 10th Pizza and Empanada Championship. Both championships are being held within the framework of the Degusta 2022 Food Expo. Contestants compete on stage with 12 ovens in front of 18 judges and 30 members of a jury made up of journalists, chefs, and cooks. Together, they choose the best pizza chef from the Americas. The championships have 150 competitors from Mexico, the United States, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Uruguay, Peru, Paraguay, Haiti, Venezuela, and Argentina, who will make a total of 575 shares. The great Argentine champion will represent Argentina at the 2023 World Pizza Championship in Parma, Italy. They will also collect over $8,200 in rewards from sponsors. 10 Downing Street is the residence of the UK's Prime Minister, but did you know it's also the home of the UK's most famous cat? He's lived there longer than most Prime Ministers. Let's take a look. 10 Downing Street's famous feline resident, Larry the Cat, was recruited by then Prime Minister David Cameron to solve a rat crisis. The rescue cat entered his new home in 2011 and has been a much-loved resident ever since. The government website says Larry spends his days greeting guests, inspecting security defenses, and testing antique furniture for napping quality. His day-to-day responsibilities also include contemplating a solution to the mouse occupancy of the house. Larry's a former stray cat. He has been known to take a relaxed approach to his mousing duties. Larry has also been lapping up the attention of the international media. He has seen prime ministers come and go and has welcomed plenty of world leaders, including former President Trump. The last holder of Larry's office, a male cat called Humphrey, retired in 1997 and died in 2006. Downing Street staff, not British taxpayers, are picking up the costs of feeding Larry. Larry ruled the roost until late 2019 when UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson brought his rescue dog Dylan to 10 Downing Street. Larry's resilience and diligence in his role has earned a place in the hearts of the nation as Britain's favorite cat. His official position is called Chief Mouser to the Cabinet Office. Who would have thought that rest and fitness would end up in the same sentence? But it's an important aspect to balancing your workouts. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body.
when it comes to fitness, the worst thing you can do is to have a late night before you work out. The second worst thing you can do is to rest too little during your workout. And number three, it's to not rest after your workout. Fitness is a request. We're asking our bodies to adapt and this requires patience. Some of us want a beach body immediately. Others want to run a marathon. Our bodies are designed to move and adapt, but need the right conditions. A fitness regime requires our bodies to meet new demands. Without stress, the body has no need to adapt. You are literally tearing your muscles apart just enough to rebuild them stronger, to become more flexible. You're adding stress to your body and too much is detrimental. We have a tipping point, do you know yours? With too much stress, the body switches to survival mode. The sympathetic nervous system kicks in. Can you identify the stress? It is mental, emotional, physical and chemical. If something like an argument, a sore stomach or a late night came before your fitness session, the stress builds incrementally. This is where listening to your body comes in. If the workout is still calling you, then factor in longer rest periods throughout or decrease the intensity. Ignore this and you'll be vulnerable. Proper rest periods during your exercise routine are crucial. Stress on joints results in sprains, strains and injury. During rest periods, focus your mind on your body, become centered. Lie down, close your eyes and calm your heart. Breathe from your lower diaphragm, slow and balanced. Patience and consistency are keys to releasing stress. It's time to get your bestie and celebrate. Today is National Best Friends Day. For most of us, it can be easy to make friends at school, but it can be a little more challenging as an adult. A few suggestions on how to honor your nearest and dearest, celebrate your BFF by sharing a nice dinner at your favorite restaurant, or maybe hang out at a park together. Today's the day to enjoy a little one-on-one -on -one time with the people who never fail to catch us when we fall. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Music